3: People need to kind of wake up, and we need to start having a deep philosophical discussion on what money is and who it represents, and if the state is issuing money then that money more or less represents either the crown or the type of government or the people issuing the money versus a private monopoly so this is the key point here i don't even like to call monetized debt the system that most countries are under now i don't even like to call monetized debt money i think it's a facsimile of money and it's two very different things
0: if you enjoy conspiracy unlimited why not become a conspiracy unlimited plus member for just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive, commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today?
1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of her supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett.
0: We are going to embark on a discussion, probably the most important discussion one can have these days, and that has to do with... How we got to where we are and where we are right now is on the precipice of worldwide depression. We just seem to continuously avoid the problem, printing more money, devaluing currencies and so forth. It's all very complicated, but it's all very vital to understand. And we're going to try and do that right now with our next guest. He is a recognized scholar whose credentials include a Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Oxford, How about that? Oxford. His literary contribution is a veritable resume unto itself, covering such fields as Nazi Germany, sacred literature, physics, finances, the Giza pyramids, and music theory. He's a renowned researcher with an eye to assimilate a tremendous amount of background material, He's able to condense the best scholastic research and publication and draw insightful new conclusions on complex and controversial subjects, and we're going to talk about that right now. And uh, we're going to go back uh, to one of his earlier books. It's called Babylon's Banksters, The Alchemy of Deep Physics, High Finance, and Ancient Religion. What do all of these things have to do with each other? We're about to find out. A great pleasure to welcome back Joseph Farrell. Hello, Joseph. How are you, my friend?
3: Pretty good, Richard. Thanks for having me back on.
0: A recent conversation with Marilyn Magruder Barnwald about Leo Wanta and the missing twenty-seven point five trillion dollars—a story I'm sure you're, you're most familiar with.
3: <laughs> well, sort of. I, I've been so busy that I actually I've been kind of submerged and underwater. I just uh, I just finished the sequel to Babylon's Banksters last Wednesday and got that off to the publisher. So I've been kind of I've been kind of out of the loop. But you know, no amount of missing money these days. would be a surprise. Indeed.
0: Obviously, within an hour, we don't have time to address a lot of the nuances. But how did we get into this problem where we are, I guess, starting in 2008 with the subprime collapse? How did this start?
3: Who's responsible? Yeah, that depends on on where you want to draw the line. And Obviously, from from the title of the book that we're discussing tonight, I tend to draw the line very, very far back <laughs> in history, um, and it really begins, I think, in ancient times when you see the the rise of of, for want of a better expression, an international bullion brokering class. All right, and this is very important to the story. It's it's very important uh, for people to understand what I'm about to say because if we trace that story forward you can trace it literally from ancient times forward into modern ones in a fairly unbroken chain of concepts and methodologies all right and this this is the key to the whole question back in in ancient times we have to deal with one general kind of basic phenomenon regarding the bullion trade and that is that the east the orient tended to value silver more highly than gold, whereas the West tended to value gold more highly than silver. Now, obviously, that's that's kind of a generalized cultural expression. We're not talking about regional market conditions or anything of the sort. But once you understand that, then you see something begin to happen. Back in ancient Samaria, money, for all intents and purposes, was a debt-free instrument That was issued on clay tablets as a, as a receipt on the surpluses of the state warehouse. In other words, it was a receipt, if we want to put it in modern terms, on, on the gross domestic product, on the gross national product. So it was essentially circulated debt free, but it was, it was circulated by the state and in connection with the temple, with, with religion. Alright? This is where the story kind of begins because you see this international bullion brokering class attempting to replace those kinds of receipts with something that has the ability to be traded internationally and that of course is bullion. Once they, they set up their trade then you begin to see a connection between these bullion brokers between the rise of, of Slavery, because you have to have slaves to mine the bullion to make the coins to pay your armies. So in other words, you start, you start to get into kind of the ancient version of the military industrial complex, you know, a a never-ending cycle of, of slavery and bullion trade and so on and so forth. So that
0: didn't end, uh, that didn't begin with the end of the Eisenhower administration. It goes back a little bit further.
3: (laughs) Believe it or not, you know. So, you know, what this does in effect, Richard, is on the local scale, it means that this class of people attempt to drive out these, uh, for want of a better expression, these kinds of debt-free credit instruments, uh, bills of exchange and so on, effectively what some of them were, and to replace them with coinage. So you see the rise of coinage uh, during the, the what Carl Jaspers called the Great Axial Age in, in from about the eighth to the fourth century BC, uh, depending on where you look, but because because see, a right. gold
0: coin was transportable, you could move it was mobile. Right. You could move it from from country right. to country, uh, right. and also uh, because when you had debt free money, that's very limiting for empire building.
3: Yes, exactly, exactly. So you see the rise of this class. Now, if we jump forward a bit, you, you see them during the the high renaissance and and uh, the high middle ages, you see the same sort of thing. Um, you see a bullion brokering class and and it's particularly focused and fixed uh, on on venice but again, you see this this attempt to manipulate the bullion trade between the Orient and the west and and venice was was just uh extremely practiced at this. It was able to manipulate golds or silver gluts or famines depending on the way the market was blowing and, and whose currency they wanted to undermine. So this is not a new story. Um, if we bring it forward into modern times, I think then you, you would have to look at First of all, the attempt by, by Abraham Lincoln to, to break the, the back of, of this private money class that had a monopoly on money issuance, of course, during the Civil War, and even earlier than that with, with Andrew Jackson. And to bring the story forward to modern times a bit more, you have a similar sort of thing being practiced by uh, Hitler and the Nazis in, inside of Nazi Germany, and to, to a similar extent or in kind of a similar way, you have some of this going on with, with communist China. So there's this big tug of war. And, and I want to be very clear here, Richard. There, there needs to be a philosophical discussion about the nature of money and who should be the power that issues it. I'm, I'm certainly not in the central banking camp. Uh, but there's a, there's a number of people out there now advocating, you know, a return to some sort of modified bullion standard. Well, my point in writing these books is that this is how the rise of that class got started. Um, it's not a magical cure-all. In other words, we need we need to take a very long historical view.
0: No, not yeah. In other words you're arguing against going back to the gold standard because, well, who's controlling the the bullion? Who's controlling the gold? The exactly. same class that instituted these central banking systems around the world. In the US it's the Federal Reserve, right. uh the Bank of England. And these this is the class that wrested control of the issuance uh of of currency uh and the printing of money away from the state right and uh, uh and so we no longer have debt free money right they create money literally from thin air and then right. charge interest and that's how they make their untold uh, uh wealth so right. yeah, not a return to the gold standard but a return to debt free money
3: yeah, it's a discussion I think we need to have. Um, you know, the the attempts to to return to that in the past have been either more or less successful depending on the example you look at. Of course, it it was done in China, you know, in in very very ancient times. And of course, like many governments they ended up inflating their currency and and you know, having numerous currency recalls, but on the other hand, it's important to note that during those periods the the ancient Chinese economy was was fairly flourishing. so it, what I'm really trying to get at here, Richard, is people need to kind of wake up and 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 we need to start having a deep philosophical discussion on what money is and who it represents. all right And you raise a very important philosophical point here. if the state is issuing. Money then that money more or less represents either the crown or, or you know the type of government or the people issuing the money versus a private monopoly. So this is the key point here. Um, I don't even like to call monetized debt, you know, the system that most countries are under now. I don't even like to call monetized debt money. I think it's a facsimile of money, and and it's two very different things.
0: Indeed, and you mentioned those periods in history when a regime has tried to fight back against a system. You mentioned Nazi Germany, and and you're careful to point out in your book that here was this murderous... Criminal gang that Hitler and right. his his henchmen, the Nazis, and we, you know we've documented their their crimes against humanity. But all the point you're making here is they had at least part of the equation right that they were right. fighting to wrest control of the issuance of currency. But certainly that does not forgive anything that they, uh, they 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 did. But there's obviously more to to that 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 story. There is a connection between money, right and as you call it, deep physics, the alchemy of deep physics. Well, let's talk about what was going on in Nazi Germany, for example. You've talked about the Nazis' pursuit of, of free energy. And I just want to crib uh, a couple of paragraphs here quickly from uh, from your book, Joseph. Uh-huh. Uh, we're talking about Nazi Germany, physics and f- uh, finance fully rationalized. Uh-huh. This relationship between finance and physics was, in modern times, first clearly perceived by that nation which not only established state credit, or st- state-created debt-free money, but which also sponsored a variety of secret research projects into free energy physics and technologies. Nazi Germany. You go on to point out that um, uh, most people are aware that various private financial powers in the West, uh, the Rockefellers, were instrumental in placing Hitler and the National Socialist Party into power in Germany. We've talked about that pr- previously on the program and, right. and uh, um, uh, Prescott Bush and so forth. What right. most do not realize is how quickly Hitler turned on his backers and refused to play ball by the same old Rockefeller rules. So now that Hitler has complete autocratic authority, Mm-hmm. He does something, as you point out, that American greenbackers could only dream about, take total control of the economy, which meant what in terms of the banking establishment?
3: Well, the Nazis do two things. Um, the first, as, I, as you read there, was they created a system of, of debt-free money. All right, They were called Seder bills, or in some cases, MIFO bills. But they were essentially, uh, kind of the, the German equivalent of, of an American United States note. In other words, a, a piece of paper that was circulated debt free directly by the Treasury, alright, with no central bank involvement whatsoever, and therefore it was interest free. The other thing that the Nazis do, and this is quite the crucial point, is that they began a number of very very secret projects during uh, the period before the war and they continued them uh, throughout the war and in my opinion continued some of them after the war that's you know <laughs> that's another part of the story but what they did richard was they were attempting to find new sources of energy they were they were quite literally attempting to make germany energy independent and that meant of course that they had to find new sources of energy that were not requiring petroleum and therefore beholden to sources that were more or less exclusively in the hands of the very same western bankers all right now, in my opinion, they were relatively successful at least in coming up with prototype technologies to do this. Um, you mentioned free energy and I think what they were trying to do was essentially find a technology that would allow them to tap into what uh, quantum physicists call the zero-point energy, and there is indication that they may have had some sort of success, albeit very halting and, and kind of preliminary in that. But we can kind of get a glimpse as to why this would be upsetting to the banking powers because of the way they treated Nikola Tesla, who was simply essentially trying to do the same thing. Uh, we all remember the story of J.P. Morgan, of course, shutting down his his project on, on Long Island to beam electrical power anywhere in the world uh, for free, essentially, because you went e- if you can, yes. yeah,
0: because you can't right. meter it if it's going through the air, uh, right, right. <laughs> right. Well, we, we need to point out a couple of things here. One, uh-huh. um, I need to understand our listeners need to understand what is the connection between issuing f- a debt free money and free energy because one would, it's almost counterintuitive. One would think that if yeah. you, you have a, a, um, um A fiat money um, system, and you have fractional reserve banking, so that you can you have unlimited credit. In other words, you can print money, um, you know, till the cows come home, which is what we have now. Right. That would allow you to dump. I mean, we have black ops projects that are dumping, you know, untold billions and billions, maybe even trillions of dollars into research projects. Right. So, if you go back to a, a a debt free currency issued by the state. How does that allow you to pour money into free energy projects?
3: Well, the connection really is in the conceptualization, and this is where I think many people get led astray as to what I'm really talking about here. Debt-free money issued by the state is essentially an open system. In other words, the, the state issues money in response to market conditions. All right, that's, that's the key here. If, if there is need for more money in circulation, you do it. If if there's need for less, you do it. The The central banks, on the other hand, perpetually inflate the currency and therefore devalue the value of currency. In other words, you're dealing with kind of a zero-sum game. You have a certain X amount of limited resources and that's certainly true of energy and this is why I mentioned energy. It's certainly true of energy. So as you inflate the currency, the cost of energy in terms of the units you have to pay in that currency for it goes up, and the value of your currency goes down. This is not what the Nazis are doing. What they're trying to do is, is they're setting up a currency system that allows them to expand the credit of the state, while at the same time they are pursuing energy systems that are not locked into this scarce resource, uh, non-renewable uh, energy resource system that we have now. So in other words, they're taking double aim. At the whole structure of the system, uh, that's that's the key crucial point that that people have to understand here. And again, one of the things I'm trying to point out, Richard, in Babylon's Banksters is that this this whole association of, of finance and physics it really is very very old. It, it it really kind of boggles the mind just how old it is, but but it's definitely there. And you see it, you're going to see it. I just kind of want to give uh, people a heads up about the second book in the series. You're going to see that. Association Association between physics and finance emerge very very clearly during the High Middle Ages and, and and the Renaissance. You're going to see it very very clearly.
0: Okay. The other thing that we need to point out uh, about Nazi Germany, lest people think that uh, you know we're we're you we're holding Nazi Germany up as a model. Oh uh, no, no, uh, <laughs> because the, the important thing to point out here too is that y- y- while they were were essentially thumbing their nose at the the uh, the international money power the, right. the, of course the fatal horrible mistake that they made was to identify as the, you know world jewelry as being at the center of this yeah, international exactly. monetary system and exactly. of course that we know where that led to the the holocaust but they were correct that there was an international money power Sure. Uh, but they might as well have also uh, sent uh, Protestants to the gas chamber because uh, exactly. there were just as many Protestants. Okay, so there were some, some Jews that were in, involved in banking. So there were many Protestants that were involved in banking. Right. The international money uh, system is not a Jewish conspiracy.
3: No, no. Okay, it's, so it's 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 a matter of class, uh, and this is this is where you know so many people run a, run astray. But you know, my whole point in writing this series is in part, Richard, to combat this idea that you're dealing with kind of a monolithic uh, religio-racist conspiracy against the rest of mankind. Exactly. Because certainly. Certainly when you turn back the clock and you look at, at things like Babylon or Egypt or Imperial Rome or then later, you know, Venice or Genoa, or, uh, Florence, you're certainly not dealing there <laughs> exclusively <laughs> with with international Zionism, you know, the last time I looked, the Medici's and the Borges and the Contarini's were, were not part of that crowd.
0: Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you. That, you know, that's very important uh, to point yeah. out, and I, we thank you for that. So, by unbridling oneself uh-huh. or unyoking oneself right. from from the international, you know, monetary powers, right? You now have unlimited. Debt-free money to pour into things like free energy, right? So, right. and 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 um, and that, I mean, so there is kind of this this two-prong. Uh, I mean, those are the two huge issues, obviously, facing us today: exactly. are cri- crippling debts and and uh, energy security. So, right. But is there? I guess I'm, I what I'm what I'm not getting is mm-hmm. the the connection between. These bankers, and I mean, do they have this this class of international monetary uh, 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 or these these international banksters? Do they have some secret um, uh, knowledge regarding free energy?
3: Oh boy, Richard, what a question! Um, <laughs> that really opens up Pandora's box, and I. I don't really directly address that question in Babylon's Banksters. I kind of hint at it. I I definitely directly go after it in in the sequel to Babylon's Banksters. So I'm going to crawl way out on a limb here and advise people that my answer is in part exceeding the evidence that thus far I've argued. All right. But my guess is yes, they do. Uh, they do have some sort of secret knowledge that at least indicates enough to them. I'm not saying it's complete or exhaustive knowledge. I'm, I'm simply suggesting that they have some sort of knowledge that indicates that there is a very, very different kind of, if you will, physics or cosmology than we have been taught publicly. And that that... Physics or cosmology is intimately and directly tied to the type of financial system that, that could threaten them. After all, let's turn the clock back and, and go back to what I said at the beginning of the interview. When we start this story, we're starting out, contrary to almost every, what every econ, economist will tell you, we do not start with barter systems. We start this financial journey with credit instruments, all right, with uh, what's debt-free money. Then we move to coinage, to bullion. Then later on, we reintroduce credit instruments in relationship to that bullion, and basically the modern system comes out of, of that uh, occurrence during the Middle Ages and, and Renaissance. So in other words, I do think that they had some sort of knowledge because if you turn back the clock and go back to those countries that did have these types of, of uh, credit money systems, uh, Sumer and China and so on, they also had a very interesting cosmology. They had a, a, a kind of uh, idea that the physical medium is a very second information-creating medium. In other words, it wasn't really, in a certain sense, a zero-sum game as it is for modern physics. And therefore, they didn't have kind of a zero-sum economy either. So all of this is tied together. And and, and my real point in writing these books is to get people to turn back the clock and, and look at how deeply interconnected these concepts are with each other.
0: No, it's it's interesting if you go back uh, into uh, American history,
3: yeah. and
0: you had the those who were advocating um, uh, people like uh, Hamilton, who were yeah. advocating that the American adopt a central banking system because it would make available to them unlimited credit, so that they could build, for example, uh, the uh, I guess it would have been the Erie Canal. Right. Uh, uh uh and and these huge you know these huge He's projects, projects. Right. and uh, and then you had others um was it Van Buren that uh, yes. th- that Alexander um fought in a duel uh, it was no, bit, that, that was actually Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr, I'm but, sorry. Aaron Burr. But, but he, you know, he, so he had the other side that were arguing ag- against the central banking. And, of course, we right. all know what Jefferson said about central banks and so forth. Exactly. So he had this titanic struggle. But the argument was always without a central banking system, you can't have these huge projects uh, we wouldn't have the the, the the capital available to us. But what you're telling us is no, that's not that's not it's the case. Is not
3: true at all? Because again, you, you had you had very huge projects taking place in Nazi Germany uh, that that really boggled the mind. Now, of course, the other the, the black part of that project is is that it was not only funded in part by by this sort of credit system, but by a massive program of, of looting. You know, wherever the Nazis army armies went. They were looting and pillaging and then of course on top of all of that they added slave labor. So you had, you know, this is, this is something that most people don't appreciate, but you had an enormous black projects bureaucracy inside of Nazi Germany. This is why they were able to pursue so many and so widely Divergence, almost kooky projects in some cases of of secret weapons research. So you know it's it's not true that that this needs to be the case. And and uh, I think I think the real the bottom line, Richard, is that those who are advocating this kind of central banking scheme are simply in it for themselves. They they are in it for their own power at everybody else's expense because it's a tremendously empowering sort of system that. that uh, they always set up.
0: Joseph Farrell, Babylon's Banksters. When we'll come back, we'll, we'll talk about how a number of uh, countries today are uh, fighting back against this uh, international uh, monetary power system. And uh, some of those countries, interesting, they've been sort of vilified in the mainstream press. I'm talking about countries like Russia. Could there be a connection? Perhaps we'll discover that when we come
2: back.
0: Hey, tis the season to give the perfect gift, C60 Evo Organic Oil Elixirs and Facial Serum Sets. And here with another sleep tip is our good pal, Chris Burrows, co-founder and chief scientist at C60 Evo. Hey, Chris, welcome back.
2: Richard, thank you so much for having me. My, my next tip uh, regarding getting better sleep is related to electronic devices. So, so we all have these this cell phone lying around or we're using it on a regular basis. What a lot of people don't realize is that those devices give off blue light. That blue light is actually tells our bodies the the only time naturally that we see blue light is at the peak of the sun. So when the sun is up at its peak at noon. And so what those devices do, including your computer terminals, uh, your cell phones, your tablets, is they convince our physiology that it's the middle of the day. You can imagine that if you're watching your cell phone or tablet at 10 p.m. and you've somehow convinced your, meta- your your physiology that it's the middle of the day, this is not good for sleep. So it's really important. Most devices have actually blue light blockers, and you can just go out and Google and you know how to blue light block on my Samsung device or Apple device. Uh, or even on your your PC or or your Mac. Uh, Make sure you turn that on. Uh, I know people who leave it on all day uh, so that they're never impacted by that blue light. I would recommend two hours before the sun is setting in your local area to turn that on. Obviously doesn't work if you're working on videos or you're working on pictures, but try and turn that on two hours early. And the other thing regarding electronic devices, try to keep them out of the bedroom uh, I recommend that you actually put a charging station outside of your bedroom so that you just don't even bring it in your bedroom um, these devices as we've kind of been reading and hearing are are like geared to trigger our uh, uh, endorphin responses and so we like to be on them they keep them up so uh, keep it out of the bedroom and make sure you got your blue light blocker on about two hours before the sun sets and I, I always like sharing sharing sleep tips because uh, our most consistent testimonial for our product is that people take it in the morning they report mental focus and energy during the day and then better sleep that night
0: c60 evo products deliver noticeable benefits to people and pets around the world immunity boost deeper sleep just like chris said more energy mental balance flexibility and longevity please visit the website c60 evo.com slash richard hyphen and don't forget use the coupon code evrs at checkout evrs at checkout and then you save an extra 10 percent. that can't wait all right chris we'll talk again next week thank you thank you
1: the truth goes through three stages first it is ridiculed then it is violently opposed Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: And Dr. Joseph Farrell is with us. His website is GizaDeathStar.com. Giza, as in the pyramids, G-I-Z-A, DeathStar.com. GizaDeathStar.com. And uh I've lost count how many books you've published, but The Giza Death Star, The Giza Death Star Deployed, Reich of the Black Sun, The SS Brotherhood of the Bell, The Cosmic War. I think that's when I sort of caught up with you, uh, uh Joseph, right. uh, around 2007. Secrets of the All Unified All right. Field, The Nazi Internationale, The Philosopher's Stone, Babylon's Banksters, which we're discussing tonight, Roswell and the Reich, LBJ and the Conspiracy to Kill Kennedy, Jeans, Giants, Monsters, and Men, the Grid of the Gods, and you're currently working on three books I'll yeah. do out later this year. <laughs> My, uh, Thank God you have time to do this show. I don't know when you sleep, Joseph. But uh, I have to crib from your book, Babylon's Banksters. We talk about what's going on in China, and it's just right. booming, their economy. They're just cleaning up at the Olympics, and there's obviously a connection there. But you point out here there's a little-known aspect of China's booming economy that Western financiers, economists, and media mandarins are loath to discuss, and that is that China's money is created by China, not borrowed from private bankers. And then you go on to point the the irony. This the idea that they're they're making debt free money. This is they've taken a page right out of the American federal constitution.
3: Right, Richard, you're opening up such a a huge area of discussion with China and their money system that you know it, it really behooves us to spend a little time with it um, because this has huge geopolitical implications. For the moment the The Chinese currency, the renminbi, is is pegged to the dollar all right but what we 're seeing and what we 've seen happening in the last few years as as the west and and the american empire and, and there 's no doubt in my mind that it has to be qualified as an empire now. As it has overstretched itself and, and just become uh, brutal and reckless with its wars and covert operations and so on and so forth, there has been a quiet reaction taking place geopolitically in the world between the two two chief Asian powers, which would be, of course, Russia and China. They recently announced that they were going to conduct their bilateral international trade Directly in their own currencies and, and not peg them to the dollar. Alright, this, this was a huge, huge thing. And this has now extended itself to, uh, similar deals with Iran. India has indicated that it wants to, to consider some similar arrangements. Uh, there have been quiet moves in Japan, uh, that preceded the Fukushima disaster, which I think are related to it, that the Japanese were attempting to, to enter some sort of rapprochement with, with China. This has huge geopolitical implications. Now here's why this idea of debt free currency is so very important and why it has, I think, the, the oligarchs of, of the Anglo-American elite a little panicked. If you're dealing with an economy like China's, of the size of China, with a debt-free currency, this means that China can go to nations like Libya or the Sudan, think Darfur here, folks, and offer them essentially debt-free money to improve the infrastructure of those countries. And this is precisely what the Chinese have been doing. In other words... They can beat the terms of the International Monetary Fund, which is basically a sock puppet for for American geopolitical interests. They can beat the terms of the World Bank. They can beat the terms of all of those central banking institutions, in other words, that are basically shills for Anglo-American foreign policy and, and geopolitics. This is why you see, in response... The United States in particular, but sometimes in conjunction with its NATO allies, expanding its bases around the world and stepping up covert activity. Because under the system that we're under, quite frankly, we cannot compete in terms of, of the value of money. The cost of our money is too high. <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line. So this has huge, huge geopolitical implications. And, you know, the more the West tries to to tighten the, the noose around China, the more you see the Asian powers, India, China, Burma, uh Indonesia, Russia and so on drawing closer and closer together. So this this is a huge story. This is the financial aspect behind what's going on and there is underlying the financial aspect, Richard, a geopolitical aspect too and and people need to understand that as well with respect to what's going on in Europe right now. There's underlying there's
0: even Syria. I mean, you connect the dots. Sure. All those countries that are aligning now with the BRIC countries Right. Uh, Brazil Russia India China right uh, they become targeted by NATO the United States which have become essentially the proxies or the right. bully uh division for this international money system right. now it's interesting when you again we're connecting the t- the dots geopolitically uh right. to uh mm-hmm. you know the current financial uh system and Uh, we were talking about, about China. And you mentioned Libya. China was making debt-free money, uh, available to Libya. And, and Gaddafi, shortly before the, um, insurgency happened, and it was, I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident, an outside insurgency, uh, that was disguised as some, some sort of a civil war. Uh, but, but he was looking at sort of, uh, forming a, a a pan-African debt-free currency, was he not?
3: Yes, he was. He was. And and it was precisely in order, again, to break out of the the chokehold of, of the Western central banks. You know, that cluster of banks, central central banks in, in Switzerland, the Bank of International Settlements, the IMF, the World Monetary Fund, World Bank, and so on and so forth. Um, all of this was being done, and it was... I think, to a certain extent, Gaddafi was acting a a little bit as China's cat's paw. So we're, in other words, looking at these smaller countries acting as proxies for the big players behind the scenes and i agree with you richard there is no doubt in my mind that these uprisings uh, across north africa and then on into to mesopotamia have been staged by largely by the west because they follow that familiar pattern of similar uprisings that were in kosovo uh the so-called orange revolution in the ukraine All of these things are, you know, they they fit the tactic that we've seen the West uh, developing and perfecting as a means of covert warfare against regimes that it does not like. And the key that they're using it's it's informative to note is is human rights you know they've turned human rights into a weapon of covert operations and i i caution people not to buy into this uh because you know the west and particularly the united states supported in in the last uh decades since the end of the second world war some some horrendous dictatorships that you know had horrible human rights records. They've simply changed the game, but the, the the name of the game remains Geopolitics and it remains finance and, and the real bottom line is is the competition between two very different philosophies of money. That's that's what's still the bottom line after all these millennia.
0: And in Russia uh, they too. I mean, Putin has. Are they now issuing debt-free money? They 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 don't have a central banking system there, do they?
3: I no. I I think they do. And I'm is that's an en- interesting question that I really don't know the answer to, Richard. I think that in Russia's case, we have a bit of a different situation. Um, I can tell you this: that if you view Putin as a kind of a neo-Stalinist or an authoritarian. Uh, in, in other words, if you if you buy Western propaganda, you're really not understanding what Putin is about. He comes out of that long tradition within Russia of, of more or less Russia for the Russians, and his moves against people like Khodorovsky and so on and so forth have been moves against the Russian oligarchs that were playing ball with the western central bankers. In other words, Putin is acting against those people. And it's of a piece with his pronouncements that he's made ever since 2007 at, you know, those NATO conferences where he was very firm in warning the west that it was clear as far as the Russians were concerned that the expansion of NATO was to do nothing but encircle Russia. And Again, I think he read the situation exactly correctly. I think that's exactly what the West was up to. The whole game has been about dominating those energy supplies in the Eurasian heartland, and the inevitable result of that attempt to dominate those supplies and to emasculate Russia was simply to create this reaction now that you referred to earlier. With the rise of the BRICS nations—Brazil, Russia, India, China—you know that is an extremely powerful block, and it is not a block that the West ultimately can stand up to if it stays together.
0: So, do you do you foresee then this this current monetary system that we have that's saddling us with? Well, it's enslaving us, is what it's doing. Yes. Do you yes. see this nearing collapse?
3: Oh yeah, I do. I do. Now, how that collapse is going to come? You know, I'm not a financial advisor. I do want to. I do want to caution people. I'm simply, you know, a hack from South Dakota that's looking at a certain interesting set of, of dots and trying to connect them.
0: A um, hack with a degree from Oxford. Come
3: on. George. Well, but nevertheless, a hack. <laughs> Hardly. But um, I, I do see it happening. I, I don't see the current system, in other words, as surviving without some drastic, radical change. But the question really is is how that change is going to come about. And we need to add to this factor something else, Richard. And, and I referred to Venice earlier, because the second book in the series is largely about that period of history and about Venice. All right. At that time, the the world was going through one of those periodic 500-year cycles of change. Now, we happen to be entering... A similar period. In other words, we're at the beginning of another one of those 500 year periods of cyclic change. But the difference now, Richard, is that this period is unlike anything previously in all of human history. The scale of it far exceeds anything that we've been through before, and the The depth of it and the breadth of it, both technologically, philosophically, economically, culturally, everything is happening at the same time. So we have to factor this into the equation because it means that these financial oligarchs in in London and and New York City and, and Washington and so on, These these oligarchs are factoring all of these things into the equation, too. And this is why I think you're seeing definite signs of desperation and panic amongst them, because they are clamping down as fast as they can on what reserves of power base that they have left. And that's kind of scary to me.
0: Yes, they're not going to give this up without a fight, obviously. No,
3: no, no, they're not so this uh, this
0: can, could be a very uh, a bloody uh, a transition from yeah. from the old system to the new one and I guess the question is could can we ultimately survive it given what's at stake?
3: Well, I've said before on on other shows, and, and it bears repeating here on yours, Richard, that we're entering a, a situation where we could be looking at, uh, you know, a kind of global version of the Thirty Years' War from you know 1618 to, to uh, 1648 that occurred in Europe, and you know that was long and protracted, quite bloody, and and um, you know ended up bringing in or kind of ushering in the modern era. So we're looking at a similar period with similar possibilities. And it is interesting in that context to note that the American military has been making noises in its publications that this is precisely what they see ahead. They see a prolonged period of protracted conflict, you know, regional conflicts taking place all over all over the globe. And it's all part of this contest now between the, the geopolitical realignment in Asia and what's left of, of the West. The key player here for the moment, at least as far as the West is concerned, is going to be Germany. And this is why I say behind the European crisis, you have a lot of geopolitics, and I think it's being engineered simply to try and maintain Germany within the Western camp and prevent any sort of direct rapprochement between Germany and, and Russia and China.
0: Is it is it possible? I mean, I've heard rumblings that given the sinkhole that is now uh, the eurozone, right? That Germany, uh, I, I mean, keep in mind that the, the billions that they've poured into Greece, yes. uh, the hundreds of billions of euros they have poured into Greece, and yet you know the world can't uh, cobble together two billion dollars to alleviate uh, you know starvation in in exactly. uh, in Western Africa. It's absolutely abhorrent. Yes, uh, it is. I agree. Um, but is it possible then that Germany is going to say, enough is enough, we're going back to the Deutschmark and the rest of you people are on your own. And the, well, that, that I- Deutsche Mark might be debt free money.
3: Well, again, yeah, you know, I just saw a poll today, as a matter of fact, right before I got on your show, that, and I don't remember what the poll was, but apparently something like 71% now of Germans think that it would be a good idea to get out of the Eurozone. So in other words, the only thing holding Germany in the Eurozone are, are the financial and political oligarchies in that country. If it were up to the German people right now, they'd be gone. And in a certain sense it's it 's only reasonable to see why germany 's largest trading partners are in asia G- Germany draws most of its energy from Russia so, in other words it 's in the German national and geopolitical interest to have closer ties with those countries there's little else keeping Germany in the eurozone other than its you know common European culture with with the rest of those countries but you can't expect uh, the German people to go along forever and, and bail out everybody else. Uh, their economy simply isn't big enough, and nor is anybody else's for that matter. <laughs> so, you know, you can't blame them.
0: What would happen um, to a leader? Well, I, I think I know the answer, and we've seen this played out in history repeatedly. But mm-hmm. what would happen to a leader of a country? Uh, let's say uh, even a presidential candidate. Who, who, would, who would declare that we are going to return to the, uh, the, the, the federal constitution and that the Congress shall be responsible for the issuance of debt-free currency. Uh, someone, well, Ron Paul was certainly hinted at that, um, right. assuming that they, they could get elected, which doesn't seem likely, but what would happen right. to
3: that candidate? Well, I suspect you you would see the same thing happen to them as happened to the other two presidents that tried to do that, namely Lincoln and Kennedy. Uh, They're stone-cold dead. Um, I suspect you'd see the same thing. The only president that, that was not successfully assassinated that did that was Andrew Jackson. And, of course, they made several attempts on his life. So I think, you know, for, for this to happen, it's really got to be a, a different approach. It's the people of the countries, you know, in, in your country and, and certainly in mine that, that need to wake up and realize what these oligarchs are and what they've been and what they've been up to. Uh, in other words, the oligarchs need to be brought to the point where they realize that they've lost their people. And at that point, they're in the same position as as the communist apparatchiks were in in the Soviet Union before the collapse. You know, they can press all the buttons and, and move all the levers of power, and nothing happens.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yes. As Lenin as Lenin once remarked, "My hand is on the steering wheel, but I don't seem to be driving. I don't know yeah. what's happening." <laughs> well, and if, and if you're not uh, if you're not in the United States or Canada, and you try to do that, then uh, then they'll say the the the, uh, the West will claim that you have an uh, act. Nuclear weapons program, or that you're cozying yeah. up to Al Qaeda, uh, right. they'll, they'll find some excuse uh, to right. bring in the NATO airstrikes. All right, Joseph, uh, listen, we anxiously await publication of uh, part two of Babylon's uh, Banksters, and uh, just about anything else you're willing to drop our way, we're just we're just <laughs> well, waiting, waiting at the edge of our seats for your next book. And uh, always a pleasure to talk to
3: you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me back on, Richard. Been a pleasure. Joseph Farrow.